1947, not far from the Dead Sea, in the Holy Land, a discovery was made that would have a far-reaching impact on the world's understanding of the Bible, Jesus Christ, and the early church. Today, we're going to talk about that discovery and what we can learn from it with our special guest, Dr. John Bergsma, who is a professor of theology here at Franciscan University and author of the new book, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, Revealing the Jewish Roots of Christianity. I'm Father Dave Pavanka, and I'm president of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Father Dave Pavanka, president of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. And we're talking today about Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm joined with our panelists, Dr. Regis Martin. It's good to have you back, doctor. And Dr. Scott Hahn. Pleasure, brothers. Uh, we also are very excited today to welcome Dr. John Bergsma, professor here at Franciscan University of Steubenville, whom I've had the pleasure of getting to know over the last couple of years, and it's been a great blessing. Welcome. Thank you. Why did you write this book? It's fascinating. I really, really enjoyed it. But yeah. What kind of motivated it? You know, the the seeds of the book came uh, a number of years ago um, during a Lent when I was reading a book by a colleague of mine, um, Dr. Brant Petrie, called Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. And it was such a fascinating book of good scholarship, but also inspirational and also uh, a sh uh, consoling in as much as it showed um, the historical rootedness of our faith, that the Eucharist doesn't appear in a vacuum, it's not fictitious, but firmly rooted in the realities of first century Judaism. And I was so inspired after reading his book, I thought, you know, I'd love to do this for the entire faith and, and talk not just about the, the Jewish roots of the Eucharist, but really uh, how the Dead Sea Scrolls show the Jewish roots of of the sacraments sure. generally and, and the church itself. Sure. And so that gelled in my mind and uh, the opportunity arose with a sabbatical to, uh, to write the book. And uh, So we have a basic understanding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but maybe just give us a catch us up on that. Sure. So the Dead Sea Scrolls are essentially uh, all that remains of a library of a Jewish monastery that flourished on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea uh, during the first century before the birth of Christ and uh, up until the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70. So uh, it's fascinating because these are documents that were being read and studied during the lifetime of our Lord and the apostles, and in certain cases being composed uh, during that time period. And they are the only physical documents that we have uh, from Judaism, with a, with a few exceptions, but for the most part, the only documents physically, you know, pen to paper during the lifetime of our Lord and even before, up to a hundred years before. Uh, and, and so they give us a, a, a privileged window into that thought world, into that culture of St. Paul, of our Lord's ministry, of John the Baptist, and uh, just absolutely fascinating. Uh, John, uh, can I ask you this? Sure. Why did it take so long? Why wouldn't something like this have 
surfaced centuries ago? Why did we have to wait until, what, 1947? Absolutely. Um, well, you know, the, the theory is, Regis, that, uh, you know, the, the monks realized that they were going to be attacked by the Roman forces, the same forces that destroyed Jerusalem in 70. Yep. And, and seeing the forces approaching, they quickly took their most precious possessions and hid them in these caves around their, essentially, monastery. Um, and, and there they remained, and of course they hoped that they would survive and be able to go back and recover them. Well, they were wiped out. Now the intriguing thing though, Regis, is that uh, looking back over our historical records, there are, there's possibly two other um, uh, incidences, you know, back in, in the Middle Ages, for example, when reports surfaced that somebody had stumbled across strange ancient manuscripts uh, down right, in this area. Right. But nobody could read them. Uh, oh, the Hebrew my. script was antique by that time, didn't know what to do with them, or make heads or tails of them. So, in fact, in hindsight, we do realize that a couple okay. of times in these centuries, people had stumbled on them, but uh, it didn't get to the light of scholarship and, and wasn't know what to do. This discovery, you know, from 1947 until really today has spawned a whole wide right. range of scholarship, you know. So you're looking at the issue of uh, the texts, the manuscripts of the Old Testament, as we, and even more than that. You're also trying to identify what form of Jewish community was this? Was it Essene? Was it Sadducee? Was it Pharisee, Herodian, or whatever, you know? And I mean, how many, well over a thousand doctoral dissertations have been written about these things, but, At least. you know, what you identify is something that is so central. You major on the majors because when you look at the Old Testament and you look at the New, you know, okay, where is the continuity? Uh, and if you're kind of reading the New Testament the way you were in the first half of the 20th century, you, you see that Paul and John are dualistic, light and dark and that sort of thing, flesh and spirit. And so it's natural to suppose that Hellenism, Greek thought, is sort of the foil against which New Testament Christianity is emerging. Because after all, that dualism isn't in Judaism, unless it is, you know. And then suddenly you have this emphasis on the New Covenant, Melchizedek, you have bread and wine, you have the emphasis that you show, you know, on, on baptizing, on water, evolutions and this sort of thing. And I mean, dozens of parallels that are unique and significant mm -hmm. that are just sort of like out there in the 50s. I mean, you know this, they revolutionized the way we were reading Paul. I mean, from Paul and, and John. Yeah, and John, and, you know, Paul and rabbinic Judaism from W.D. Davies on. And so it's like this fresh, you know, return to the New Testament to see, wow, there is so much more continuity than scholars supposed yeah. because of this. And then, of course, there's also the backstory of why did it take 40 to 55 years to translate all of these scrolls? But that's for another day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's pretty obvious that much of biblical scholarship is driven by a kind of ideology. Oh, always. A mythology, right? Yeah, and, right. and the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls puts that to rest. Sure. Oh. You know, and one of, these, one of these ideologies is this notion that Jesus himself could not have claimed to be divine. Jesus himself cannot be the person that he has presented to us as in the Gospels. And uh, so particularly, you know, the Gospel of John has been a particular right. target. Yeah of modern ideology, and as uh, Dr. Hahn alluded to, um, prior to the discovery of the scrolls, there was this strong movement to say, John with its clearly divine Jesus 
this has to be a late fictitious document from the second, maybe even the third century AD, long after any real contact with Jesus and the apostles. In other words, the guy who wrote the fourth gospel could not possibly have, have been really, the disciple of Jesus. Have really have known Jesus. Right, right, then right. We, we dig up the scrolls and we find dozens of rare parallels of phraseology that only occur in the writings of John the gospel and the epistles, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. Yep. And we suddenly realized, oh my goodness, whoever wrote this yeah. was using the forms of speech and, if you will, the religious slang right. of Jews in the first century. Yeah. It can't be late. It breathes the spirit right. of, of that era. Yeah. And, and that completely, uh, it was a sea change in, in scholarship on John, but that has a domino effect on the rest of the New Testament as well. Just That's one of the things that I loved about the book. It's like just dots were connected in, in you know, this story and how it fits in. I thought it was just beautifully, beautifully done. One of the main things, obviously, you spend a lot of time on the community. So maybe speak a little bit about that, particularly the scene community that was living at the time and what we learned yeah. from them specifically. Sure. Uh, one of the things we learned for them is that monasticism is not a Christian yeah. invention. Yeah, that was fantastic. Um, it, it's rooted in Judaism. And it, uh, Jews are a little bit ambivalent about this. Some, you know, don't want to call this community a monastery, even though you have celibate men devoting themselves to work and to it prayer. It looks like a duck. <laughs> yeah, like a duck. exactly. <laughs> call it a duck, right? Yeah. So, but, but, but there's another strain of Jewish scholars who are, are proud of this. It's like, why, why should we be embarrassed about it? This is yet another thing that we invented. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> so I, I'm more in that camp. I think this is another thing that can be credited to the contribution you know, to world culture that, that Judaism has made. But, but uh, so it was essentially a monastic community where you had um, celibate men living together, uh, living a life of prayer, of worship, but then even what we would recognize as Catholics as a sacramental life, mm -hmm. because they had sacramental practices, you know, practices involving physical matter, water, uh, bread, wine, that they participated in on a regular basis. Uh, every day around 11 a.m., they would wash in the waters of the community, which they believed communicated to them the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. and the forgiveness of sins. And after having been purified in that manner, they would meet together and they would celebrate a meal of bread and wine and some other things as well, but primarily bread and wine. And a priest had to be present at that meal and he had to reach out his hand first to bless the elements of the meal and then each could partake. They called that the pure food of the many. It's a very interesting mm -hmm. thing. They referred to their community as the many, right. which I can't resist, crops up in the Gospels when our Lord says, you know, this cup is poured out for the forgiveness of sins for many. Still part of our canon, yeah. Still part of our canon, right. And, uh, but that term many was, was used for this covenant community because they thought that they were participating in the new covenant. Uh, that was promised, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 31, the new covenant that would replace the covenant of Moses. So when we look at, the, at their community life as Catholic Christians, we see so many resonances, so many similarities with, um, with uh, uh, Catholic uh, ritual life, Catholic sacramental mm -hmm. life as a whole, as well as specifically uh, religious life. Right. And, and that's fascinating. I appreciate the, as a religious, I appreciate <laughs> that. That's right. One of the things it also does is it exposes just how uh, multitudinous 
the, the sectarian pluralism of first century Judaism was. Because when we think of Judaism, we usually look at it through the lens of rabbinic Judaism, yes. normative Judaism, which is the inheritance of Phariseeism. And they clearly won after 70 AD. Yes and have dominated ever since. But we knew the Sadducees, you know, we know the Herodians, we know the Zealots and the Essenes, and there are others too, but you know, I rem I'm reminded of a show that we uh, had when we were young, To Tell the Truth. Yeah. Where I was never young. <laughs> <laughs> where three or four people pretended to be one oh, yeah. famous person, you know, yeah. then at the end, you know, he would stand up to tell the truth, you know. Well, where do you find authentic Judaism? You know, the primary candidate that would get the most votes would be Pharisaic Judaism. Right. You know, not Sadducees. They don't believe in angels or the resurrection and that sort of thing. But, you know, the Essenes are sort of like the underdog. Yes. But when you delve into it and you look at the Therapeutai and other offshoots or parts of the Essene movement, you're like, this is like a 10-point match, you know. If this were DNA, it would be like 90% or 99, you know. And that, to me, is sort of the breakthrough because first-century Judaism was as united as 21st-century Protestantism. <laughs> I mean, there were just dozens and dozens of denominations, but, if you will. But I, I have a question. Uh, why would the Romans be interested particularly in wiping out the Essenes? I can understand going after establishment Judaism. Let's annihilate them. But the Essenes, they pose no threat Out to the, the empire. They're yeah, private, esoteric. I, right, right, right. They I, don't even export this stuff. I, I agree, but it was, uh, it was so easy for the Romans to dispatch them. And it's just like a fly I, batting around, you know. I or just, termite. Yeah. Exactly. While you're there, might as well. Yeah, yeah. let's just send, let's send 100 guys down there and get rid of that group lest they do something, you know. Right. And, and they, they may not have been well armed or physically strong, but they had uh, great rhetoric, as we see yeah. in things like the War Scroll. You know, they had these right. apocalyptic yeah. writings yeah. that predicted a battle with the Katim, which is their name for the, for the, uh, for the Romans. And uh, so the Romans were like, oh, let's just, you know, make sure that that does not become an issue. So I, I think it was kind of like that. A, a well, it's a wonder that if they had taken refuge in these caves, they wouldn't. They wouldn't have. Is, is that why they were wiped out? Uh, because you know they were they were caught sequestered there. But if that's where they were hiding out, why didn't they also find all those documents? You know, that's. I don't think that the. Uh, uh, I don't think that the monks took refuge in the cave. I think okay. they probably put up a fight. I see. Because in the in the destruction level, we see evidence of combat. We see arrowheads and things yeah, like this. Uh, so there was an attack, and and uh, for the poor monks, I thought they, they probably thought this was Armageddon. And, yeah, right, right. And, and, and you know, the Lord was going to come through for them. It didn't happen that way. Uh, but um, but uh, thanks be to God, you know, in His providence, their library was preserved for us, right. and that's been a great gift. Right. So you, and we'll talk more about it, but you speak a lot about the relationship between the, the scrolls and the New Testament, make connections that I look forward to talking about. Maybe a little bit about the Old Testament and what it, sure. what it revealed to us. Yeah, the, the relevance to the Old Testament is, is great in as much as among the scrolls, about a quarter of the scrolls, about 250 manuscripts, were copies of books of the, what we would think of as the Old Testament, uh, including some deuterocanonical books. So there were at least five copies of Tobit mm -hmm. in their library, mm -hmm. which is fascinating for us as Catholics because the usual claim that's made is, oh, you know, ancient Judaism never considered this scripture. Uh, but they had five copies so at amazing. least. 
uh, which is uh, many more copies than they had of books like Ruth. Uh, they had no copies of Esther, you know. Um, so many biblical books were less well attested than, than uh, Tobit. And, uh, you know, I argue in the book, too, that I think they, they got their theology of marriage largely from Tobit and elements like that wonderful prayer uh, before the, um, after the nuptials of um, of uh, uh, Tobias and Sarah, mm -hmm. so uh, it's you know that's it, beautiful, and also we have our oldest copies of you know proto canonical books like Isaiah. Yeah. So the yes. the, the, the greatest recovery, uh, probably the Great Isaiah Scroll, a copy of Isaiah complete, perfectly legible from perhaps 250 BC. That's so great. There's much more to come, so stay with us. At University presents. One thought that came to mind as I was reading Dr. Bergsma's book is that the Dead Sea Scrolls reaffirm our confidence in the four Gospels. There are lots of books in ancient Christianity that purport to tell us about Jesus. There are the four canonical Gospels chosen by the church, and then there are the apocryphal Gospels. And the apocryphal Gospels often get Judaism wrong, but the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they get Judaism right. There is a place where education begins and faith and reason connect. Franciscan University of Steubenville's online programs will advance your career through an e-learning experience that's both academically excellent and passionately Catholic. With online degrees taught by full-time professors in theology, catechetics, business, education, and other disciplines, you can earn your master's degree online without changing your lifestyle. Find out more today at franciscan.edu where your faith and career can connect online. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We're talking about Jesus in the Dead Sea Scrolls with our guest, Dr. John Bergsma. Thank you again so much uh, for being with us. We left the last section about speaking about Isaiah, and, and one of the great discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls was the text of Isaiah. So what did that teach us about the prophet and then also about the Old Testament related to the New Testament? Sure. Well, you know, just to put this in perspective, Father Dave, um, before the discovery of the scrolls, our oldest complete uh, copies of the books of the Old Testament in Hebrew, the language in which they were written, only went back to approximately to, say, 1000 A.D., maybe a few scraps uh, earlier than that, but that was, you know, the oldest date mm -hmm. of a complete copy of a biblical book. And then, you know, obviously, 1947, a flurry of activity, they found some scrolls. One of the first scrolls that was discovered is a complete scroll of Isaiah it's just fantastic. from chapter 1 to 66. Now the chapters are put in later, but the whole thing, yeah, yeah, okay, from, uh, from, again, dated uh, by radiocarbon, would, would say 250 BC. The handwriting would say a little bit younger than that, but let's not quibble. <laughs> so, so fantastic. Yeah, so in, in one discovery, we're jumping back a millennia in terms of our our copies, our handwritten copies of the biblical text. So immediately the question is, well, let's look at it and see, ha, was anything changed? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and 
uh, no, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's a little bit ambivalent. Uh, you know, some scholars would have liked to have found that a lot had changed. That would have been exciting in a certain sense. But on the other hand, for those of us that are believers, it's very consoling to discover, right. oh no, there wasn't. We got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah there was no tampering in the text uh, for uh, for a millennia. Uh, so that, that was a, a fabulous. You know, we, uh, scholars call it a witness to the wording of the okay. ancient text. Now. It wasn't accidental that Isaiah was the best preserved book that we found there. They have many copies of Isaiah because they really treasured Isaiah uh, and, and quoted from it frequently. And you see the same pattern in the New Testament. In fact, if you tabulate in the New Testament uh, the four most quoted books, okay, you find that that's the same also in the Dead Sea okay, Scrolls. Okay. So Psalms, Isaiah, Deuteronomy, and Genesis. And that's the same pattern that we find also. So what we're seeing is these were the go-to books of the Old Testament for first century Jews. And, and, and why those books, a large part has to do with the Messianic focus. You know, as Catholic Christians, we talk about Isaiah as the fifth gospel because it speaks so much about the servant of the Lord who we know to be Jesus of Nazareth. But they saw that too and they treasured that because they had this, uh, this active Messianic expectation in this monastic community. And I thought that was one of the really interesting points of your book, speaking about their understanding of what the Messiah was or different ideas of different types of messiahs. That was just really interesting. What, what, what I find really striking is this irony, a crowning irony, that while these Essenes uh, are cultivating this intense eschatological awareness of the, of the approach, the impending approach of the Messiah, there he is, a day's yeah, walk, yeah. half a day's walk away. The Messiah is living, breathing, and he's a Jew. Yes, yeah, and, and if my theory is right, his herald uh, spoken of in Isaiah was growing up in their monastery, was in one their of the midst. young men that, yeah. that they were training. They're educating we him. Yeah, <laughs> we have to get back to that. You can't just let that go. So let's deal with the Messiah and then go back to the herald. Sure, yeah. sure. But just the, the, the different types of Messiah, different understandings yeah. of Messiah that they had. Well, they, they meditated a great deal on the Messiah. And the way I read the scrolls, they basically had a majority report and a minority report <laughs> about how they thought he was going to appear and do his ministry. Majority report was there's going to be two of them. Right. Uh, one from the line of Aaron, a priestly Messiah, and one from the line of David, a royal Messiah. Um, where would they get an idea of two Messiahs? Well, if you look at some of the late prophets like Zechariah, there's these passages where he has visions and he sees, for example, two olive trees. And, you know, olive oil comes from olive trees. And those were symbols of two anointed ones, a, a priestly and a royal. So based on those uh, prophecies of the um, Messiah, they developed this, what's called technically diarchic messianism, just fancy word for two messiahs. So you see that frequently in the scrolls. Now, that seems to be their majority report. Uh, their, their minority report in a document uh, from the 11th cave, uh, the, the Melchizedek document there, uh, seems to have hinged all the hopes on a figure that they, that they called Melchizedek. And he would be both priest and mm -hmm. king, as we see in Genesis 14. And he would come and proclaim 
uh, an eschatological, an end times jubilee year, freeing people not from money debt, but from the debt of sin, freeing people not from physical slavery, but slavery to Satan, and usher in this great era of, of uh, freedom. So that's that, those are their two, in and my as you reading, said, that, two perspectives. That the Messiah was literally just down the road. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. So closely. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, The rootedness really of this in the Old Testament, though, is so paramount because, you know, if you were in the line of Aaron, you couldn't assume the high priesthood unless you were anointed, you know. Yes. And likewise, in the line of David, you were anointed as Solomon was, you know, by Zadok. And so you have a dual anointing. Uh, do. And that's what Messiah means, an anointed one. So the priestly line as well as the kingly line, there is a clear sense that I would so I would say that um, that the son of David, that the Davidic Messiah is going to take on primacy in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. And yet these are not like mutually exclusive options because when you read Hebrews, what other document from around that period identifies someone who is both priest and king yes. and goes back before Aaron in Exodus to Genesis where the two were united. And then, of course, the Messiah will reunite them. But John is clearly shown in the Gospel of Luke to be from the line of Aaron and yes. Levi, the tribe. And so it's like, wow, this is either a series of coincidences that have gone largely unexplored <laughs> Or this is a divine Something fulfillment. Here, right, right. Exactly. It really is. It sheds yeah. such um, a new light on John the Baptist, and we begin to realize right. why do all the gospels spend so much time with, with this poor guy who ends up getting beheaded, you know, and his movement falls apart. You know, but but John had such a, a powerful role in salvation history, and I think that the, the Essenes were onto something in a real sense. John is that priestly Messiah, perhaps of whom Zechariah spoke. The promised one from the line of Aaron who would go before the royal Messiah and prepare the way. And Luke presents the two figures, John and Jesus, in this way so that if you had been formed by the Essene movement as a first century Jew and you pick up the Gospel of Luke and begin to read, you say, oh my goodness, there they both are. And Luke even points out in Acts that John the Baptist had followers years after he was beheaded who knew only the baptism of John but not this baptism of the Holy Spirit. So they were already pre-evangelized as it were. Absolutely. this is sort of paradoxical. Uh, if you're going to spend your life longing for a Messiah, pining for the arrival of this guy who will set everything straight, then it seems to me uh, there's no point in doing this if he doesn't come. But when he shows up, uh, you need to acknowledge his appearance. There he is. I mean, I, I think of Psalm what is it, 132. David is longing for a place, a dwelling fit for the Lord. He doesn't want to go home and sleep in his own bed until he's constructed a place that is somehow suitable for God. Well, here is the place. It's not concrete. It's not a bunker. It's a person. Indeed. I am the kingdom. That's right. And, And these monks were anticipating that because they had already reached the point when they re- where they realized that a dwelling of stone was not a fit habitation for the divine presence. And they began to see their own community as the new temple. And they even call themselves a sanctuary of Adam. You could translate that different ways, a sanctuary of man, a sanctuary of human beings, something like that. But you can see that they're, they're anticipating 
what we see in the Gospel of John, where Jesus speaks of the temple of his body, right, in John 2.21. Jesus is the sanctuary of a man, right, uh, in, in, in a personal sense. But they'd already moved to that, and they were anticipating that. So, and, and Regis, I think many of them got it. There's, uh-huh. a, there's an almost a throwaway line in Acts 6 that talks about many of the priests becoming obedient to the faith. Most scholars think that the priesthood in the first century was only composed of Sadducees and Essenes, okay? The only two groups. The Pharisees were not a priestly movement. Yeah. And I, I think that's referring to the, the, those priests from the line of Zadok who were associated with the Essene movement, they had been prepared providentially by the Holy Spirit, sure, I think, sure, sure. to be ready to see Jesus as the fulfillment of their expectations. And I think there was widespread conversion. That's great. One of the things you alluded to earlier, the possibility, and I found this part very, very fascinating, that John the Baptist might have spent some of his childhood in his early years with them. Speak to that. Sure. That the, was just, it was great. It was great. Right. You know, the famous uh, Father Raymond Brown, the great John commentator, he made a remark in one of his early essays on the Dead Sea Scrolls that um, everything said about John the Baptist in the Gospels resonates in some way with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm-hmm. And I agree with that. So, um, you know, we, we find out from Josephus, the historian of this time period, voluminous uh, books about the first century. Uh, he remarks that the Essenes, um, in order to keep up their numbers as celibate men, would take in orphans and young men from the Israelite community and raise them uh, in their community and form them. He actually uses the word form, just yeah. like we talk about formation. They right, would form right. these young men. Now, when we look at uh, what the Gospels tell us about um, John the Baptist, we notice, first of all, his parents were elderly um, and may have died while he was young or may have felt unable to raise him. But then there's a throwaway line in Luke 1 that speaks about him being out in the desert until the day of his appearing when he begins his career. Well, what does that mean? You know, do we imagine Z- Zachariah and Elizabeth just shooing him out yeah, the door, yeah, yeah, door yeah. at age five to go live on Good grasshoppers yeah, yeah. out in the desert. <laughs> that doesn't really make sense. But we do know that they had this monastery in the wilderness, in the desert, okay, and then they took in young men and formed them. So I think it's a very plausible scenario that Zachariah and Elizabeth sent the young John out to be raised in that desert community. Um, when we see him preaching, uh, one of the notable characteristics of his ministry is that he identifies himself with Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That's how he conceived of his life's mission, his life verse, if you will. And that's also the life verse for this monastic community on the shores of the Dead Sea. They used Isaiah 40, verse 3 as well to justify and explain why they had built their community out in the wilderness and what they were doing out there. They were preparing spiritually the way of the Messiah on the shores of the Dead Sea. Something that specific is so unlikely to just be coincidental. And then there's many other connections as well. Josephus tells us that when... um, uh, members of the community were, were kicked out or expelled, they often almost starved because they had to live off the land in order to keep their oath. When they had joined the community, they swore an oath from that point forward never to eat any food prepared except the food prepared within the community. Well, the only out then is to eat unprepared food. And so Josephus describes mm-hmm. people living on grass or things like this. If they 
had the misfortune to be expelled for having committed some offense against the community or something like this. And what do we see John the Baptist doing? Living off the land, eating locusts and wild honey, just whatever he can find and so on. So he looks like an expelled Essene in that sense. Uh, So there's many other, uh, you know, little details, but, you know, there's about a dozen details like that that all make sense in terms of John having been part of that significant, community. And then, significant but he was that. expelled from that <laughs> community. Uh, that's, that's my uh, Because of my some theory. heretical view, his, his, his reading of Isaiah right. uh, insisted I, it was universal. I, I argue that because, because you see John at a major crossroads at the uh, O'Hare airport of his day, if you will, you know, yeah. if you want to preach to the whole world, set up a pulpit in O'Hare and everybody yeah. will come through, right? Yeah. Well, he was at a crossroads on the Jordan where, where major traffic was going from east to west in the Roman Empire and he just had to stand there and he could see everybody passing by and he goes and he preaches salvation to whoever will listen, even Roman soldiers, right. as we see who he's exhorting to. He must have been a real pest. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, indeed. Spelled pest. Yeah. (laughs) Well, there's more. We'll be right back uh, with Franciscan University Presents. I invite you to stay with us. One thing that I found most significant about Dr. Bergsman's research on the Dead Sea Scrolls was how deep and far-reaching the implications of his findings are for ecumenical dialogue between Catholics and Protestants, whether it's priestly celibacy, works of the law, or the Eucharist. Dr. Bergsma shows that not only does the Catholic faith have roots in scripture, roots in the early church, but even more than we already knew in the Judaism of Jesus's day as well. What if you discovered a university with unmatched science, faculty, and programs? a place where you didn't have to choose science over faith. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith-inspired, student-focused, research-driven programs leading to satisfying careers in medicine, scientific research, engineering, computer science, and many more science and health fields. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, education is more than just a word, it's a discovery. Welcome back and thanks for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents and we are coming to you from the ComArts studio here on the campus of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Our students are doing a great job operating the cameras and the equipment. And members of our theology faculty, Dr. Regis Martin and Dr. Scott Hahn, are guiding us in our discussion on Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls with our guest, Dr. John Bergsma. Dr. Bergsma, One of the things that you spend quite a bit of time is taking a look at almost a sacramental structure within the community. You speak of Eucharist and baptism, marriage, celibacy. So that must have been fascinating for you to see the connections with that. Um, Absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, most of the scholars that work on the scrolls are not sacramental Christians. Uh, They're non-Catholic Christians often or members of the Jewish faith. And, And so these parallels are not as interesting for many of the scholars that work on the scrolls. But for me coming at it as a, as a practicing Catholic, uh, this is one of the most striking aspects um, that uh, there, you know, th- the Holy Spirit was leading devout Jewish communities in a direction 
towards a, a, a sacramental life. And this is, you know, it's, it's like what um, Pope Benedict uh, Emeritus uh, spoke of. Uh, he always was famous for the hermeneutic of continuity, this idea that there's, there's a, a sensible, continuous development from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And the scrolls are like, like a little, you know, a missing link there that we can place that allows us to see how God providentially leads His people in, in an organic way into the New Covenant era. Mm-hmm. So, what do we see in the scrolls? We see kind of what looked to us like a form of baptism and a form of Eucharist. Um, daily water washing and waters that they believed communicated to them the Holy Spirit. Daily a meal of bread and wine presided over by a priest. And this meal was the mark of their participation in the New Covenant. They went through a three-year probationary period, we might think of it as like a postulancy and a novitiate, and they were gradually admitted to the pure food of the many. And when they could fully partake every day in this bread and wine, that was the mark that they had been fully initiated into the new covenant community. Oh, I mean, you So the idea of Eucharist that. just for the community that we hold today is not something new. In a you sense, know, yeah, no. Yeah. Even, even the, you know, our, our word Eucharist means thanksgiving. And, and Josephus tells us that they began and they ended the meal with songs of thanksgiving. And we even have their hymn book, okay, <laughs> and a collection of their hymns. And all the hymns begin, I thank you, O Lord, because, you know, this is their, their stylistic way of their, you know, praise and worship uh, right, right, Well, right, I right. mean, <laughs> the whole ground of their communal life is gratitude, Indeed. thanksgiving. So, Eucharistica, why, why shouldn't they be happy? They're, they're the remnant. They've been exactly. singled out by God uh, to be the recipients of this final revelation. The, the irony is it's already happened, uh, and they missed the boat. <laughs> and, and, and some, of course, conspired to kill the Messiah. But nevertheless, they had been chosen. Sure. A, they were this privileged vehicle. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it took 70 years to get to where we are, you know, in terms of this clarity, this continuity between old and new, and seeing in this community so many of the practices that the Holy Spirit prepared them for to welcome the Messiah. But when you go back to the first 5, 10, 15 years of scrolls scholarship, remember, you know, how chaotic it was. Mm-hmm. You know, you had a figure like Allegro who was alleging a mushroom cult, you know, <laughs> probably because he was indulging himself. But you also had other people, Milik and uh, Geza Vermesh, who was losing his faith. You know, and the, and the highlight in the, in the secular media was always, you see how highly unoriginal Christianity is, you know. Yes. That it, and people were losing their faith because of all of the irresponsible and reckless scholarship that was going on. And then after that initial phase, you have a pluralistic phase that lasted decades, I would say. Mm-hmm. And, and the pluralism, as you know, is so wide that you have a professor like Schiffman who's arguing unconvincingly that they're Sadducees. And it's like, well, he hasn't convinced very many people. But it just shows what a pluralistic spectrum. But what you have done in this book is to pull together not only the Messiah, you know, in terms of the priestly, but especially the Davidic, not only the key with Melchizedek and Eucharist and baptism, but the whole way in which a community could be structured by worship in general, but sacraments in particular. Mm-hmm. I mean, not sacraments of the new covenant, mm-hmm. but the precursors show, in fact, that Jesus wasn't inventing a new religion. He was fulfilling a very ancient one. Right. And I, I'll be honest, when I go and guide pilgrimage, you know, uh, lead pilgrimages to the Holy Land, 
Uh, Qumran is usually last on everybody's list. It's first on my list, like I suspect <laughs> it's first on yours, because once I get started, it's kind of hard to repress the fact that you can show, again, dozens, and it's not just like dots on a page. When you connect the dots, you know, it is John the Baptist, it is Jesus, mm -hmm. but you can really get a sense too that this is sort of closer to Christianity than anything we imagined a century ago. Sure, you know, and, and the argument against the idea that uh, our Lord or St. Paul ever intended a church was always the idea that, oh, since they expected the immediate return of the Messiah, right. why would they form an institution and why would they begin sacramental practices? But here you have a group that expected the Messiah to show up any day, right. and yet they were formed in, a, in an ecclesial structure. They use the Hebrew word that is, is translated ecclesia in Greek to refer to their community, the kahal, that's one of the synonyms for their community, and they're, they're practicing sacraments and they're hierarchically structured, and they're expecting the Messiah any day. So if they could do that, yeah. you know, why could not the apostles and our Lord also set up a community that was structured in that way? Yeah, isn't it uh, sort of amusing that the very evidence that you cite that emerges from the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, which shores up the claims of, of the Catholic thing, should for a whole generation of scholars be a reason to reject it. I mean, Orwell says there is no absurdity to which a learned professor <laughs> will not somehow find recourse. Right. Uh, it's a kind of parasitism, I, I, I think. You mentioned this chap in your book, I forget his name, maybe we shouldn't mention it, uh, who's an apostate. He's part of this movement called Atheist Biblical Scholarship. I mean, what a ridiculous oxymoron. Why would somebody be interested in that, debunking this precisely because they've lost their faith? Yes. Well, his name is Legion, for there are many. <laughs> I mean, you've dealt with these people. You run into them oh, all the time. At the same time, there was always a minority represented by guys like the Dominican Roland DeVoe, yes. who was so sane and so sober and responsible. You know, and he was the one who early identifies this as a kind of monastic community, shows all the evidence for celibacy, and there is, was even more than what he saw. But because he was a Catholic and a priest and a Dominican, oh, you know, this stuff is right. just dismissed. Right. When yeah, the evidence yes. was there staring you in the face. Yes, yeah. but he was, a, he was a responsible scholar. And yeah, another really was, was. Uh, uh, Jean Cardinal Dan Danielou, famous for his other contributions in the Nobel Theologie and, and right. so on. But he, one of the inspirations for my book was a short, maybe 70-page book you're familiar with, uh, Scott, uh, that was published shortly after the discovery of the scrolls right, uh, right. called something like the Dead Sea Scrolls and Primitive Christianity. Yeah, he was on it. Yeah, he, he was. was on it already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he made the points and then it went nowhere because other controversies took over the, the, the realm of scroll scholarship. I see. I picked it up 50 years later, probably more than that now. I looked at it like, he's Scientist right, he's right, he's right. right. Yeah. This just needs to be defended now with, the, with the, the fuller publication of the scrolls that's become sure. available in recent decades. Right. He became a lone voice crying in the wilderness. <laughs> exactly. He's like his subject the way of the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You spend a couple of chapters about marriage and, and how they saw marriage, but then also the relationship with the community being celibate. Mm -hmm. Maybe speak to this. You know, you know f fascinating, again, um, you know, on the point of marriage, uh, they were very firm on that. They did not believe in two wives in a lifetime. Uh, they believe in lifelong monogamy and uh, the implication that would rule out, you know, divorce, which is, leads to a kind of serial um, polygamy, essentially, sure, sure. one wife after another. And uh, so we find that when our Lord is questioned on marriage in Matthew 19, the Pharisees come to him and, is it right to divorce your wife for any and every reason? 
uh, that's reflecting a debate within Pharisaism about how loosely or stringently to interpret the divorce laws in, in Moses. But our Lord's response sounds strikingly like the position on marriage that we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So they're were, they were very uh, firm on this, and they criticized uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees for allowing, you know, multiple marriages and, 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 and so on. So, um, you know, again, in the book, I argue that uh, part of their views of marriage are probably coming from Tobit and from other sources as well. And interestingly, they appeal to the same thing that our Lord appeals to for grounding lifelong monogamy, and that is the, the principle of creation. We see how our Lord goes back and he says, from the beginning it was not so, right? And he goes and he appeals to the pre-fall state uh, to, to, to speak of um, uh, the... The, the perseverance of the indissolubility of marriage. You, Likewise, in the scrolls, they talk about the the sod habaria in Hebrew, the principle of creation they speak of mm. when they ground their view of marriage. To bring this around, though, I mean, you identify John the Baptist once again as the one who gave voice to this faithful ver- view of of marriage in the Old Testament from creation all the way through Tobit, you know, and 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 also how the uncle niece relation was right. forbidden right. in right. Mosaic law, which was the Brodian king. Yeah, was I mean, it lo- it, it, he gave voice, but then he lost his head, <laughs> and it's so significant too that in Matthew 19 verse one, it's precisely when Jesus goes to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, precisely where John had been preaching that message against Herod, Philip, and the uh, the idea that you know it cost his head there. You know, I think the Pharisees are raising the question in a very provocative way to get Jesus to suffer the same fate as John the Baptist. Why do they wait until he's there to ask him that when the last person who was there preached that and got beheaded? This could be a neat way to get rid of him. Here's a a conjecture that maybe you could uh, uh, address. John the Baptist uh, is sent there perhaps by his parents, uh, Mm -hmm. and this is part of God's plan to insert this Jew into this community. Why not his cousin Jesus? Why wouldn't Mary and Joseph have shipped Jesus out to be instructed by these learned and and, uh, holy men? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it has to do with uh, John's specifically priestly pedigree, um, because the um, uh, a common theory is that um, the this monastic community was either founded or refounded by the high priest who was muscled out by Jonathan Maccabeus, also called Jonathan Aphis, one of the Maccabean kings around 150 BC, he arrogated himself to take over the high priesthood. That would be like the Italian prime minister, you know, making himself pope by force, right? And it was a great scandal at the time, but uh, nobody knows what happened to that high priest. He's not, his name is not recorded in other histories who was uh, muscled out. There's good reason to believe from the Dead Sea Scrolls that he actually went down and went into a kind of internal exile and became the figure known as the teacher of righteousness uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So I I think there there was strong sympathy with the Essene movement within the Jerusalem priesthood. I think some took the role that Zachariah did of continuing to serve Uh, and doing the best that they could and putting up with this imperfect situation while maintaining 
theological sympathies with these kind of purists who went into a kind of internal exile. So he, Zacharias sends his son to be raised by this very conservative group that he respects, even though he himself, Zachariah, continues to serve in the temple. That's how I, I see it playing out. Whereas our Lord didn't have that priestly pedigree. Well, um, he had the Blessed Mother, the true daughter <laughs> indeed, Zion, indeed, yeah, in whose heart yes. he's being raised. And, uh, yeah, and 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 you see in now just just weeks ago, uh, new archaeological evidence uh, turned up showing that the practice of Judaism in Nazareth during the years of our Lord was very conservative, and in many ways favored the Essene application of the purity laws. Yeah. So I think there were probably a great deal of Essene sympathy in Nazareth, and um, we see that our Lord has a critical sympathy with them as well. Uh, most of our Lord's teaching resonates uh, with, with, uh, the, with Essene views, although the cultic purity uh, point is, is the real sticking point. And it's significant that after 70 AD, there are no Sadducees, naturally, because they were priests and they were destroyed in the, the, you know, the judgment and the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, there are no zealots because they would have been warriors who lost their lives. There are Pharisees and they basically get to kind of, you know, restock and redefine Judaism. But the Essenes evaporate, evaporate almost entirely. I mean, and so if any one group of Judaism was perched and prepped for conversion, it was them. And the continuity from Essenic practices to Christian practices, you show it's remarkable. And, uh, you know, again, you have to connect the dots, but once you do, it jumps off the page. It does, yeah. yeah. Great. Up next, our panel and guests will share their final thoughts on Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Stay with us. One of the things that I really like about Dr. Bergman's book, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, is that it helps us to put Jesus into his proper historical context. It's a reminder to us that when God became man, he entered into our history at a particular time and place and among a particular people. All right, and so when we study the historical background of Judaism in Jesus' day, you know, we have extra light that is shed onto the stage of salvation history where our redemption was accomplished. And I think it's a good reminder that Christianity is not a philosophy and it's not a mythology. It's something with its pillars resting firmly on the bedrock of human history. back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment. Regis, could you start us off with your final thoughts? Yeah, a couple of uh, thoughts, but uh, certainly uh, praise uh, uh, for this book and, and the job that you've done. You bring a lot of passion uh, to uh, your, your study and your teaching. Uh, and the book itself, it distills, I think, wonderfully so much scholarship, but it doesn't read like a scholarly tome. Uh, it's very readable, very engaging, very winsome, and really very compelling. Uh, so congratulations, I hope it becomes a, a bestseller and maybe a film. <laughs> uh, but the point I, I wanted to make, uh, two points really, that the axioms around which any assessment of Christianity uh, uh, has got to be made are one, that this thing, Christianity, is an event. Yes. And it's absolutely, universally, uh, without exception. Uh, it's unique. It never happened before, uh, unprecedented. 
and it's all rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. But, but the other uh, axiom is that this newness is mediated now by the church. And the church is a woman, a, a mother, a virgin, Mary. And Jesus, the founder, was nestled uh, in the womb of Mary and her heart and the home in Nazareth presided over by Joseph. None of that uh, can be found uh, uh, in Qumran. The Essenes do not generate that. Judaism you know, at, at its finest uh, is always looking for something more. And yes. that something more is embodied in the flesh and blood and bone of Jesus. Amen. And it strikes me that for, gosh, 1,946 years, we know nothing about uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The fathers and doctors and saints, the popes and theologians of the church knew nothing about it. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, for example, who lived at the end of the first century. Uh, he rejects Judaism in such a way as to leave very little room for ecumenism to maneuver. <laughs> I mean, you don't want to, you want to be salted with Jesus or you're going to smell bad. <laughs> Judaism was waiting for Christ. Christ was not waiting for Judaism. A clean break, a total uh, discontinuity. And yet with the work you've done and other scholars, it looks like there's something there that really uh, is promising. There's a continuity that, that we depend upon and we should praise God for. And thank you for putting it all down on paper. That's great. Absolutely. That's great. Dr. Hunt. As you know, I've got shelves of books <laughs> on the Dead Sea Scrolls, most of which I haven't read, most of which you have, and then some. And so, again, I want to affirm how you've distilled the scholarship. You know, in particular, I want to emphasize the continuity and the discontinuity yeah. like you were, Regis, because Christianity is the full flowering, but it exceeds the highest hopes of even the holiest Hebrews back then. You know, and so you have shown that the blueprint of Scripture, the Law and the Prophets, then the scale model of the Essene community, you know, and when you look closely at baptism and the Eucharist, you find ample precedent. When you look at holy orders, priesthood, and marriage, ample precedent, you know, even the celibacy, but their view of marriage was so high, higher than any other Jewish group at the time. And then you just kind of add that up and you come up with ecclesiology. <laughs> the church is there. Church. It's a scale model. You can't yes. move into what the architect provides as a scale model, but you suddenly understand just how much of a fulfillment we find in what Christ has given us in the church, in his own mystical body, the bride, the kingdom, and all of that. You know, and so I want to conclude by saying, Get this book and read it, you know, because in a certain sense, this retires all of the shelves of books that I have mm. that I haven't gotten to as well as the material that I have. But when I speak at Qumran the next time, I don't have to just <laughs> identify five or six titles from which you might find nuggets. No, you did it. <laughs> I'm so grateful. One last thing, you know, some people want spiritual reading that will kind of get them through the week. You know, it's like people who plant for the fall harvest. What you planted here is more like a forest, you know, and it will take years. But I would say in order to get beyond the spiritual reading of living hand to mouth, in order to really invest deeply in spiritual growth in the long haul, people would read this and suddenly prepare themselves to celebrate the sacraments in a deeper way and give this to their kids or to their friends and family members. And I think the long-term effect will be so much greater than we'll see, you know, in a year or two. Indeed. But I still want it to be a bestseller. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah, you know, um, the the whole point of the book really stems out of something that we confess uh, every uh, Lord's Day 
in the creed that that he has spoken through the prophets. Mm. It's fundamental to the gospel that Jesus is the fulfillment of the hopes and the prophecies of the people of Israel. Now, it would be slightly strange if nobody had seen it. Okay? <laughs> if we, we, we claim that, uh, don't, do we not, that the New Testament is in the old concealed, right? The famous dictum, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. Well, if that is the case, that the new is really concealed in the old, we would expect that those who are devout, those who were really to practice asceticism, those who gave, devoted themselves to prayer, might see the shape of what was concealed in the old. And for me, the Essen community saw that. And, and in this book, I try to demonstrate that. It, the, the fact that there are so many similarities doesn't detract from our faith or from the gospel. It really affirms a central tenet of our faith in the gospel, that it's the fulfillment of the Old Testament aspirations. Mm -hmm. And um, if, if people pick that up from reading the book, I will be satisfied. Oh, that's mm -hmm. fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Bergson. It's a pleasure. Um, if you want to learn more about today's topic, we have a free handout for you, an article from Dr. Bergsma about the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this is free to you, for you but simply by going online to faithandreason.com or by calling the number you'll see at the screen in just a moment. Uh, Dr. Bergsma, I, I thoroughly enjoyed your book. Um, I was trying to, as I was beginning to read it, thinking it was, as you stated, uh, Regis, can be a little bit more of an academic, I don't know, um, it was an encounter of faith. It really was. It was, it was an encounter with the Lord. It was an encounter with the early relationships and communities and peoples and, and customs. I, I, I'm trying to imagine what, what was going through me as I was reading it. And you, I don't have kids, but you all do, right? <laughs> there are those big puzzles that you have that you put in a piece of puzzle on, the, yeah. on a board. That's what I was feeling when I was reading this. It's like this just fits and, and I could just slide into it all the things that I've come to understand and believe and, and espouse to over my whole life. Being able to see this as a part of that, it was so natural and exciting. It was, it was a mystery. It was putting pieces together. It was answering questions. It was making connections. It was just thoroughly enjoyable. And, and ultimately, and I would encourage the readers, has been, is that it was an encounter with Jesus, an encounter with the Christ and the risen one and the holy one and the anointed one. And, and I found that it was, it was divine, it was anointed, but it was also very human in the most beautiful sense that you would think that Jesus would have encounters and understandings and rituals that were a part of his community. And we continue to carry those on. So I found it a deeply enjoyable, exciting um, and spiritual book, as you mentioned, Scott, that, that, that there's just a lot of a lot of depth and rich to that. So thank you so much for all Fantastic. the time and the effort that it went in. You're uh, very welcome. Great. great. And again, we want to thank you for being with us. I invite you to join Franciscan University of Steubenville in our mission to educate, to evangelize, and to send forth joyful disciples empowered by the Holy Spirit. We offer academically excellent and passionately Catholic undergraduate degrees, both on campus and online, for you and for your family. We also provide life-giving conferences that our young people and adults are, be able to, are able to go to to encounter the Lord and the grace of the Holy Spirit. We also offer Franciscan University pilgrimages that you can go to these holy shrines. How about we do a trip sometime to the Holy we Land? We should. There we go. We just figured this out. We just again want to thank you for joining us. Know of our prayers and our continued prayers for you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.
download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381 or call 740-283-6357.